This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. You're pretty good at this. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is about science with two disabled scientists. Gabby Serato Marks, a PhD candidate in marine biology, freelance science writer, and patient advocate. And Lisa E. Torres, a trained scientist and disabled scholar activist whose work focuses on addressing racial and gender inequity and disability in science. You hear Gabby and Lisette talk about the training and education of scientists, barriers disabled people face in science, the responsibilities and ethics of scientists, how science can be used as a tool for social change, and the importance of scientists for marginalized communities. Are you ready? Away we go. So, Gabby, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Gabby Serrato Marks, and I'm a fourth year PhD student in geology at MIT. So, my day job is looking at past climate change in southern Mexico. I was recently diagnosed with. Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and have been dealing with chronic pain for about four years. When did you first realize that, you know, science is your calling? Since I was a little kid, I knew I would be doing something involved in science. When I was in second grade, I did a biography project about Marie Curie, and I ended up dressing up like her for our final presentation, wearing a shawl with a little toy microscope and uh, she was sort of my first STEM role model, which was pretty cool. Once I got to college, I realized that I wanted to be able to teach people the same way that my professors were teaching me, and I really enjoyed being part of their classes. And so that's a big reason why I'm in grad school now, because I knew that to be in academia, I needed a PhD. I had really dedicated professors who made sure that all their undergrads got research experience, and all these skills that a lot of undergrads don't get. I'll give a shout out to my thesis advisor, Michelle Levine. And I took a bunch of classes with her and then did my honors project with her. Um, And she actually had a baby during that whole process. So she was a role model for me in terms of balancing her own real life and academic life and her career. Uh, So I really appreciated the article you wrote uh, in 2017 titled, It's Time to Stop Excluding People with Disabilities from Science. And, you know, what prompted you to write this? I started writing with Massive Science, and they have you write 
an op-ed and that was something I had never done before. But that fall I was pursuing treatment and diagnoses for my chronic pain condition and I was just so frustrated with how many walls I was running into. And I was also struck that the whole issue of ableism in academia and in science is something that I had previously had the privilege of not being aware of. So I felt like I was on my own putting writing out into the internet. You never know exactly what you're going to get. I was getting messages from people saying, thank you for writing this. I've had fibromyalgia or I've had similar problems or my sister has this. I know what you mean. This is something that a lot of people are experiencing, but it's hard to talk about. What were some of the things that struck you about the way graduate school is organized that really, you know, does exclude people with disabilities? I think the most frustrating thing is that the work hours is really unlimited for some advisors. They really expect students to be able to work pretty much 24-7. And for a variety of different disabilities, that just doesn't work. No one can function 24 hours a day. That kind of burden, I think, is greater on disabled people than it is on non-disabled people. One thing I've tried to do is just not respond to emails that are coming in at a time after I'm working. And that's my one little piece of resistance. But I think it has to come from higher up where people are aware that that system doesn't work, that it might have worked when the only people in academia were men with wives at home who were taking care of their children or whatever wild system it was, but it just doesn't work for anyone with a family or with responsibilities or so many different things. You know, if we want people to do well, you know, we have to be able to support everyone. What do you do for self-care? Because really, grad school is really stressful. I really enjoy writing about things other than my research. So I do some freelance science writing and also building community. So I have a lot of internet friends who I talk to on Instagram and on Twitter who have similar experiences to me or who understand a little bit about what I'm going through. Um, I have one friend, Susanna Harris, who founded PH Depression, which is an advocacy page group site for anyone in graduate school managing mental health conditions. And learning from other disabled activists and asking on Twitter, you know, how do you ask for a seat on a bus and things along those lines has been really valuable. So I'm very grateful to all the people who have come before me and who have slowly figured this stuff out. And speaking of community, uh, you know, this past fall, you and your partner, Skylar Bayer, put out a call for stories from communities with disabilities 
Tell me, you know, why you did that and why you think, you know, storytelling is important. So Skylar and I both have done stories with the Story Collider. It's a kind of theater science combination. She and I both have stories about fighting against our bodies to be able to do the science that we really love. And we realized that we were not alone in that. We wanted to make sure that there was a wide variety of stories represented, people who have ended up staying in science, people who have pursued other career paths because of the challenges they've faced, people who have been extremely successful in addition to their disability, all those kind of facets of life we wanted to capture. We thought the best way to do that would be to have people tell their own stories. We're hoping to put the stories together into either a series that'll be published online or potentially even into a book. Wow, that's exciting. I think this would be such a valuable resource for the world. Yeah, I appreciate it. I really think so too. You've also been uh, you know, advocating for you know, improving access to our conferences. Can you describe like how important annual meetings and professional conferences are to you? It's a really big deal because it's the one time a year, sometimes only every other year, where everyone in the field gets together to talk about the latest research. And sometimes it's things that aren't even published yet. And if you aren't there or if you aren't able to access the information, you're really missing out. And so there, there is a push to do more virtual conferences and to have access to be easier for everyone to not have to fly to a sometimes remote or expensive place um, but instead to have this information be more accessible to everyone. But one of the things that has been challenging in the past for a lot of disabled scientists is that these giant meetings, if you do attend, they just aren't built for us. They aren't prepared for disabled scientists. I collected uh, some stories and perspectives from neurodivergent scientists because I was going to make a video about those perspectives, in part because a lot of people wanted to remain anonymous. So I didn't want to tell these stories, but I wanted to highlight them in people's own words. I was just struck by how powerful these experiences were and how frustrated and left out people really felt in a lot of ways. And especially at conferences that are loud, busy, bright lights, you really don't get a lot of breaks. That was something that people highlighted as a particularly difficult and uh, really fraught event. Well, you just need my pet peeve. Tech uh, conferences where they have like sessions scheduled for like 8 a.m. to like 6 p.m. You know what I mean? It's just like, there's absolutely no way I would ever be able to go even for a half day because that's just, you know, so much back to back. 
Yeah, your brain really gets saturated, I think, after just a few talks. So doing it all day is kind of wild. For me, the most obvious example of something that could change is the fact that poster sessions where everyone stands next to their poster and everyone else goes and reads the posters, those so often have alcohol involved, which can be really difficult for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And they also entail standing at a poster for sometimes four hours. So those poster sessions for me are kind of a nightmare. There's so many different layers of how inaccessible they are, you know, from actually navigating the poster space, which is often enormous with sometimes thousands of posters up at the same time, or being able to see and read the poster or having it at a height that is similar to your eye level, all these different issues. Poster sessions, I think, are some of the most frustrating and difficult spaces, especially for me. What is lost to disabled people to teach you to be excluded? I think disabled people have a unique level of determination and problem solving that is actually perfect for science. Like the whole idea of science is trying to discover something new that no one else has discovered before. And sometimes my friends and I say to each other that if research were easy, if these questions that we're trying to answer were easy, then someone would have already answered them. And I think that's kind of true for a lot of disability experiences as well, that people say, oh, I don't know how you do it. And the answer is, well, you have to, and you just get through it. I think science is missing out on a hugely talented pool of people just because of the structural barriers that exist and that disabled people deserve to be there. It takes all of us to like do our thing, but I think you know, you're gonna make an impact on, you know, if not current, you know, right now, people are thinking about going into science, but just opening the doors, opening the conversation for future scientists. So, you know, thank you for all that you're doing. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. So, Lisette, uh, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Oh, you're welcome, Alice. Anything for you. My name is Lisette Torres-Gerald. I am a Puerto Rican mother scholar interested in equity within the sciences and kind of looking at how scientists shape the work that they do. I am currently trying to finish up my dissertation on scientists, bloggers of color, and how they view their work as public intellectualism. But in terms of my full-time job, I am currently the director of a writing center at a liberal arts college in Nebraska. Do you have degrees in- to earth 
Department of Sciences and Zoology. They are curious about what led you to study those areas of science. As a kid, I always loved animals. I thought I was going to go be a veterinarian, and I took my first um, intro to molecular biology course, and I just was not a fan of the cellular and molecular stuff. Um, that's how I kind of wound up in it in earth and environmental science. Um, and then from there, I met an amazing mentor by the name of Dr. Craig Williamson. I was majoring in earth and environmental science, but I was also majoring in religion studies uh, with a focus in Buddhism. I knew there wasn't many careers that would bring those two together. <laughs> After talking to Craig, he really encouraged me to go to graduate school, which was something that I didn't even know existed or even considered. So in your university's bio, you say, my ultimate goal is to inspire students to learn about themselves and to engage a positive social transformation. Using science as one of the tools for change. That is something that I talk to a lot with my colleagues in Science for the People. In terms of my classroom, making sure that my students know that it's not we're not coming in and and saving people with the tools of science just making sure my students understand that they should be working with and for the community um, and not seeing the community through this lens of pity. And so what I've been pushing at my institution is trying to share the, the darker side of science and kind of showing the how science has been used to oppress and then lead them to see how it can transform in positive ways. I've been trying to show them the responsibility that they have, like the history, the ethics, and the questionable research that scientists have engaged in, in the name of science. So I try to teach them about the Tuskegee study and the Guatemala study and talk to them about, especially the women, white women are unaware that they get to use birth control because of the sacrifices of Puerto Rican women and Mexican women, you know, who were sterilized with the first trials of birth control, you know, and Henrietta Lack and the use of her cell line and how everyone uses her work. And for the longest time, her and her family received no credit or money.
when I talk to a lot of the scientists in my circle anyway, they are surprised or unaware of a lot of these things that have happened or they assume that those things were far in the past. You and I know this, but like eugenics is still alive today. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in science just deny that because that's a pity, you know, this duplicity perpetuated that. And I think a lot of people in science are, you know, sometimes they justify some of the horrific things that have been done to people in the name of advancing science. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and they think that it can't happen again. And I think, like the adage says, we're doomed to repeat history, right? If you don't acknowledge that it happened and you don't know that it happened, then the odds of it happening again are pretty high. I think oftentimes scientists think they know what's best for people um, without actually having conversations with the people they're claiming that they're helping. So working with my students to engage with the communities and and to also ask permission (laughs) and indigenous scholars I'm sure would tell you this over and over again science most scientists don't ask permission to be on indigenous land or to ask particular questions think about like how invasive that is like capture animals or you know, take samples of, you know, flora or fauna, but you're on lands that are sacred, much less experiment on people. And related to that, Alice, is I appreciate that especially climate change folks and ecologists are reaching out to Indigenous communities and there's an acknowledgement of the wisdom of indigenous communities. I always worry also that those communities aren't seeing necessarily seeing the benefits of that information being that data being collected and distributed. And so I want the scientific community to be, I think, a little more reflective and culturally aware. <laughs> Um, because I think oftentimes we feel it's like our right to just collect this information, but without talking to the people who it impacts. And, And climate change, I think one of the biggest things that I think folks need to understand is that climate change is real. It's impacting people and it's doing so disproportionately. And we're seeing this impact, especially the disabled community and marginalized poor uh, communities of color. 
if science is a tool for change and, and science is liberatory, then we should be talking to and working with those communities to use science to remedy the situation and to make the world a better place. You know, earlier you mentioned the publication Science for the People. Can you describe what Science for the People is? And also, your involvement with the publication? Sure. Science for the People actually was a group that started in the late, I want to say late 60s, then the group was a group of activist scientists who were anti-military, Marxist, very radical left, awesome outspoken group. That very first March of Science was kind of a means by which Science for the People started reaching out to more folks across the country. And we're just continuing to grow and and actually um, we're relaunching the original Science for the People magazine, and that'll hopefully be relaunched this year. It is this first issue of, is there a particular theme? Yeah, so the theme is, the theme is called Return to Radical Science. We've been wanting someone to pitch something on disability in STEM, because that's a gaping hole <laughs> in our work. There were a, a few back back in 81 on disability in the sciences, but they were written from able-bodied scientists. Oh, wow. So th- they were written by allies, and so it'd be really nice to have disabled scientists come and write stuff for us. Uh, For people who are unfamiliar with the hashtag Barges side, can you tell people what that is and why it's important? Yeah. I highly suggest following other sociologist, um, other sociologist is Sulika de Cevalos, and she has an amazing blog, and she provides an overview of the history of the hashtag. The hashtag margin sigh was a tag created by Dr. Stephanie Page. She was involved in some Twitter conversations regarding diversity in the the original the first march for science and she kept talking to the coordinators of the march and trying to make them aware of the need for greater representation and they just weren't listening to to her or to many of the scientists of color and disabled scientists who were kind of telling them, hey, for the march, these are the things that we need. Um, And so she created the hashtag 
Marjansai to kind of bring awareness to the lack of representation in the March for Science, but also for STEM in general. And she wanted to highlight their refusal to create or include a diversity statement and to engage in conversations around diversity. I think there are scientists out there, um, many of whom are scientists of color who think of science kind of like I do, that there's a greater purpose than just collecting data and sharing it among a very select group of people. You have a responsibility to translate your findings into accessible language and be intentional about sharing what you've collected with the folks around you, especially those who are impacted by the information. Lizette, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. It's delightful. Aw, thank you, Alice. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project, an online community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying disability media and culture. All episodes, including text transcripts, are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Droppies and Lizette's work on our website. The audio producer for this episode is Joe Gray. The introduction by Latif Profound. The music by Roger Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Play. Do you also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp. Thanks for listening. Did see you on the internet. Bye. Rocket to the blast stop. Stop, drop, dance off. <laughs>